The History Show with Kieran Doyle on West Cork FM. On today's show, we feature a lecture given by Faulkner McCarthy last winter on the life of John F. Kennedy, a hundred years since his birth. This lecture will focus on his family, his political rise, assassination and, of course, his West Cork connections. Faulkner has produced some interesting and original research in exploring his West Cork roots of his Irishness. What you will hear today is part one of the lecture given by Faulkner and you can hear part two in a fortnight's time. So sit back and enjoy. As Tim said, um, we're trying, not alone are we um, pointing out the West Cork connection just to redress the balance, but we're marking the centenary of John F. Kennedy's birth in 1917. Uh, This is the reason why we're having the lecture this year, and also we're coinciding to within a day with the 54th anniversary of his assassination in Dallas, which was probably the most extraordinary event of the 20th century, because it was probably the first great event captured live on, on film. Um, in, the, in the era of television. Television was just becoming big for the first time. Prior to that, news reached people the following day or the following week. This was instantaneous and it resounded around the world like no other event um, before it. So it shocked everybody and so on. And also, um, John F. Kennedy probably stood out from all previous presidents because he was, he was the first president of the USA born in the 20th century. He was youthful. He was sort of a dashing figure and he was just different to all the sort of staid and boring old men that generally most of the previous presidents were and he captured the imagination and he was a very charismatic figure. So his death was, as I say, a sensational event. And he, um, there, there had been lots of presidents who had Irish connections before him but he was the first uh, American president whose entire background going back to all 16 of his great-great-grandparents, were Irish, so we had a particular interest in him. Um, now, the, to add to the sort of the poignancy of it, he had been in Ireland um, only six months earlier, and we all know what an enormous impression that visit made on Ireland. And really, after about four decades of absolute boredom, depression, and what have you in Ireland, because Ireland was a pretty miserable place, for the first 40 years or so after independence. This was like some sort of a culture shock. It was the first time the whole country celebrated that we saw some, something positive and it left a lasting impression. So the fact that he was dead within months, probably it made us even more um, shocked than the rest of the world. And all of the focus um, on him was on um, his Dungan'stown roots in Wexford. And I find that absolutely extraordinary. He, as I say, everybody has 16 great-great-grandparents. Just, you have two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, and 16 great-great-grandparents. One of the 16 great-great-grandparents was from Duncanstown. The other 15 were not, and there wasn't a mention of them. Eight of his great-great-grandparents were from Limerick, and the people of Limerick had to fight and struggle to be included in the Irish visit. It was only confirmed two weeks before he arrived. And it was as if the people in in Limerick were intruders on this great event. So I'm trying to strike a balance because uh, two of his great-great-grandparents, at least, 
um, and there's a question mark over the other two, were from West Cork, one from Woodfield, where I'm from myself, and the other from the adjoining townland of Corley. And it was when I discovered that, I started asking myself the question, why don't we hear about the West Cork connection? Why is it always Duncanstown? And we're all sick of the expression, the Kennedy ancestral home in Duncanstown. Well, with the greatest of respect, that was only one of 16 ancestral homes. But to this day, it, it gets all the limelight. And I can't understand why. Um, I suppose that's because the name Kennedy followed through from the Patrick Kennedy who immigrated. So I'm going to go through um, if Marion, my able assistant, will bring up the family tree. And right at the very top there um, is Patrick Kennedy, the fellow at the very top. Um, top right hand side. Now, Patrick Kennedy was a farmer's son and he immigrated um, in 1848 to Boston and there are two versions of the reason why he went and it doesn't matter which is true uh, and I've read both in different books but it doesn't matter but on, on the one hand we're told that he left and on the ship to America he met Bridget Murphy who was from six miles down the road. They realised they were from the same area. One thing led to another, and they married in September. Within months of arriving in Boston, they were married. The other version of the story, which I thought was the correct one, but at this stage I don't know, but as I say, it doesn't matter, was that Bridget Murphy had left for America, and Patrick Kennedy was um, broken-hearted, and he followed her. Either way, they got married in Boston, and they settled down. Um, she was a year, depending on uh, which source you read, she was either a year or three years older than him, but that doesn't really matter. He um, was an ordinary labourer. They lived in very poor circumstances, in rented accommodation, and they were, like the vast majority of immigrants, they were very poor, living in the east side of Boston. Uh, they had three daughters, and they had a son, John, who sadly died just before his second birthday. But then they had a boy that they christened Patrick Joseph, and you'll hear plenty about him in the minute. Um, his mother always called him PJ. And when PJ was only 10 months old, his father, the Patrick Kennedy, who immigrated from Dungenstown, died. Um, again, depending on which source you read, either from cholera um, or from tuberculosis. It was probably a combination of both. So despite all the focus on Patrick Kennedy from Dungenstown, that one of the 16 great-great-grandparents actually had the least influence on the whole Kennedy line because he was dead before his son, his only surviving son, reached his first birthday. So that brings us to the second lady, which is Bridget Murphy, Patrick Kennedy's wife. Now, you'll all have heard uh, expressions like remarkable Kennedy women and all this. Well, in my humble opinion, the most remarkable woman in all of that chart is Bridget Murphy. She was... Um, a, a poor person as well from near uh, New Ross and she went to Boston uh, but she had the advantage that she was going to be staying with her cousin so she wasn't going out there totally on stick. Anyway, she had three daughters and she had a 10 month old son, Patrick Joseph, when her husband died that left her in absolute poverty and misery and she Many others in her position would have had to maybe um, give up her children to be reared in a home with nuns and so on. She kept her family together, and not alone that, she prospered. She worked so hard that when the shop where she worked 
came on the market for sale, she bought it. Now, that was unheard of in the middle of the 19th century for an immigrant, a poor, miserable immigrant woman from Ireland. She bought the shop, she expanded it, and she saved enough to educate her son, Patrick Joseph. Girls didn't really count in those days. They weren't sent for education. They worked in the shop with their mother. And Patrick Joseph received a reasonably good education until he was 14 years of age. And it was as a result of that work by this remarkable woman and that education that Patrick Joseph Kennedy went on to become the successful man that he became. So I can't understand why if you go down to Wexford, you have signposts from all over the place sitting at Duncanstown and there isn't a mention of Bridget Murphy, the woman who really is responsible for the start of the Kennedy family dynasty. Um, the, the next people, and as you move down along the chart, are the hickeys, but I'm going to skip the hickeys because I'm going to finish with those. And if you want controversy and confusion, just wait until we come to the hickeys. <laughs> Further down, the last eight people are Fitzgerald and Cox. There's no confusion about Thomas Fitzgerald and uh, Rosanna Cox, and neither is there any confusion, whatever, about Michael Hannon and Mary Ann Fitzgerald. They were all from Limerick. Um, that is absolutely certain. Um, three of them were from Brough. Michael Hannon was from Loch Gore. And if you think you heard of that place before, that's the same Loch Gore that's mentioned in Lady Carberry's letters. Um, uh, she had a connection with, with um, Loch Gore, as some of you will know. Um, we are absolutely certain about that um, part of the background. Um, and at this point, I have to, to say that back in 1963, there was great hullabaloo in West Cork when a batch of Fitzgeralds from Skipperine uh, were invited to Cork to meet President Kennedy on the basis that they were closely related. Uh, they weren't. I don't know how the confusion arose. Um, but I'd, I'd probably be shocked by somebody from Skipperine after the lecture, but let me finish and you can shoot me then. Um, we know about the Fitzgeralds for the very simple reason that uh, Mary Josephine Hannon... Um, she is the daughter of Michael Hannon, who was born in 1865. She lived until 1964, and she was an alert and active woman. That woman lived until 1964, which gives her... She has the distinction of being the only person to have lived to see a grandchild elected as President of the United States. And she outlived the President. And she was an alert woman, and she and her husband, the famous uh, John F. Fitzgerald, uh, known as Honey Fitz, they actually came back to Brough um, to visit their homestead and so on. And there is a Fitzgerald Centre in Brough, which is open to the public, and you can go and see it. And it has a remarkable family tree painted on the wall in huge big letters and colours and so on. So there's no doubt about the Fitzgerald side of it. And 50% of the Fitzgeralds or 50% of President Kennedy's ancestors came from either Brough or Lockgore in Limerick, and there was scarcely a mention of them. To my astonishment, in, in the book by Ryan Tuberty, when he mentions the visit to Cork, in just one throwaway sentence he says, Cork was included because it was believed that the Fitzgeralds came from near Cork. Now, I suppose if you're from Dublin 4, Brough and Lockgore are probably near Cork. I don't know. But I thought it was extraordinary sloppy journalism, and I thought that he really could have done better than that. 
um, because the Fitzgeralds were very influential, uh, as, you'll, as you'll hear in, uh, in a minute, as you probably know already. So um, we go back to the great conundrum, the Hickeys and Hassett. There are three apparently conflicting um, pieces of information. Funny enough, as I'll come to it at the end, I think that they can actually be merged together. First of all, um, Loretta Kennedy, who was Patrick Joseph Kennedy, PJ Kennedy, I mentioned a moment ago, his sister, she was a historian of sorts. She kept records of the Kennedy family, and in her papers in the JFK Center in Boston, there is a reference to the fact that James Hickey, her father, immigrated from Clonakilty Bay, County Cork, Ireland. This wasn't known until relatively recent times. And I never heard, when I was growing up in Clonakilty, anybody ever say that the JFK had connections in Clonakilty or that there was anybody around um, who, who even had a suspicion of being related to him. But this came to light, and it was interpreted, in my view, mistakenly, to mean that he was born in Clonakilty Bay. Now, I don't want to be um, glib or cynical, but if he was born in Clonakilty Bay, there are only two possibilities. Either his mother was in a boat at the relevant time, or that she was, shall we say, taken by surprise while she was having a swim in Clonakilty Bay. <laughs> the, the idea of being born in Clonakilty Bay doesn't stack up for me. Um, but... There is an explanation for Clonakilty Bay, which I will give to you shortly, having verified it um, with the manager of the Cove Heritage um, Society, who knows a thing or two about um, immigration and ships and so on. The other version of the story, according to numerous articles and great research, which was undertaken by the leading genealogist in Boston, a man called Richard Andrew Pierce, who published his findings in 1998, and he claimed that the Hickeys were from uh, near Newmarket on Fergus in County Clare, and, and specifically from uh, Drumoland Castle area. And he published that in 1998, but in fairness, at the start of his article, he did mention what Loretta Kennedy had said in her papers. And in an effort to clarify it, he visited Ireland in 2001. And he went to the National Archives, he went to Trinity College, and he inspected an enormous body of work. They're known as the Inchiquin Papers. The, the landlords um, in uh, that area in Clare uh, uh, were uh, O'Brien's, they were the Lords of Inchiquin, um, if memory serves me correctly. And there are an en enormous number of papers dealing with them, and in those papers are references to their tenants and under tenants and so on. And a family which would match the Hickeys was found. And he traces it in great detail. And I'm not going to bore you with it because we'd be here all night just on that one aspect alone. And he then cross-references it with the passenger list on the Trimountain, which was the ship in 1851 that carried Catherine Hickey, formerly Hassett, and her children to America. Uh, Michael Hickey had died in the meantime, but there's no evidence of his death. Um, he's, he died apparently in the 1840s. But in 1851, Catherine Hickey, the, the mother of James Hickey, um, who was mentioned there, and it was his daughter, Mary Augusta Hickey, who married Patrick Joseph Kennedy, they sailed to America. And 
the difficulty is that that um, finding of his that they were from Clare doesn't tally with Loretta Kennedy's statement. The third piece of evidence we have is that John Hickey, a postman from near Glendore and an avid historian who was very involved in Ross Carver Historical Society, he wasn't just an average person with an average passing interest in history, he was genuinely interested in it. He had always been told that he was related to James Hickey, who had been a prominent figure in Boston. And then, by deduction, if, if that man's daughter, Mary Augusta Hickey, had married Patrick Joseph Kennedy, that therefore he was related to President Kennedy. Further research has shown that the Hickeys, um, who live in Glendore, the same as the Fitzgeralds and Skibbereen and other families, actually came down after the defeat of Patrick Sarsfield from Clare and Limerick. And in my opinion, if you read, and believe me, this is heavy reading, uh, uh, Richard Andrew Pierce's uh, findings, it is really heavy reading, because he goes into the records of the um, naturalisation application when people apply to become citizens of America and so on. He goes into the most minute detail. But if you read it, and you read his findings on the tenancies in the Inchiquin estate in Clare, there is a potential gap in the 1840s uh, when it is quite possible, in my opinion, that the Hickeys, this family moved to West Cork. So how, then you're going to ask, how come the reference to Clannacilty Bay? Well, the ship that they sailed on left in 1851. Steamships didn't come in to operation on the transatlantic route until the mid-1850s. So before that, it was sailing ships. And sailing ships did have, and this has been confirmed to me by the manager of the Heritage um, um, place in Cove, did have stop-off points. Because if you think about it, if you're in Skibreen or Glendore or Roscarby or Clannacilty and there's no public transport and there are no roads of any consequence, it's a hell of a long walk to get to Cove. So it was the practice to pick up passengers at certain points. And Clannacilty Bay was one such point. So in my view, the only plausible way that you can marry together um, Loretta Kennedy's statement that her father left Clannacilty Bay, uh, Mr. Pierce's findings that the Hickey family originally came from Clare, and the fact that there was a connection to Glendore, is that the Hickeys moved down, possibly joined up with other family members, and immigrated on the Tri Mountain uh, in June of 1851. And the passenger list of the Tri Mountain does confirm that a whole flock of Hickeys left and arrived on that ship. I'm not going to dwell on it any further. It's an area of enormous controversy and confusion, um, and I can't add any more to it. However, I am in continued co correspondence with Mr. Pierce, who wasn't aware of my work and my findings about the um, sailing ships picking up passengers at certain points. So I hope someday, it could be weeks or months, to actually come up with something definitive, and if so, uh, somebody will give me five minutes here or some night before another lecture and I'll tell you all about it. So, I'm going to go on to some of the more prominent members in the family tree uh, because, believe me, um, I've dealt with Bridget Murphy but there's a few others that are really worth mentioning. Um, so, Patrick J. Kennedy, Patrick Joseph Kennedy, the President's grandfather, um, whose mother was Mary Augusta Hickey that we spent the ages talking about. I forgot to say, just before I move on, the Hickeys... How, how did it? I don't know. They became extremely successful, extremely prominent in Boston. And the, in their family were engineers, chiefs of police, and a medical doctor. 
And indeed, when Joe Kennedy, the father of the president, was buying out the bank, uh, the, the um, Columbia Trust Bank, he got a lot of the money from the Hickeys, who at that stage, of course, were in laws of his. Um, so the Hickeys did extremely well. And when Patrick Joseph Kennedy, that we're talking about now, when he married Mary Augusta Hickey, and I hate using this expression, but this, it's, it's relevant, it was said that she married away beneath her. Um, because she was a member of a very prominent family. And indeed, the account of the wedding um, suggests that, that it was a big social event in Boston. So we're at Patrick Joseph Kennedy. He benefited from being the only member of his family um, to be educated. Uh, Bridget Murphy, his mother, had worked wonders to make sure that he was educated. And he had one other great advantage. He was one of the few Irish immigrants in America that didn't drink. Most of them did drink, and I suppose life was such a drudgery, that was the only consolation they had, and they drank any spare money they had. So what he did, well, he did the exact opposite. He bought a pub, and he sold them the drink, and he did quite well. But don't get the impression that he was any sort of shark or anything. He was actually a remarkably nice man, very good to those who were not well off. And after he died, in fact, there was a letter found for his family to say that any money owed to any person was to be forgiven, written off. So he, he became quite prominent in politics, even though he actually had no interest in politics, but because he was so well got among his fellow Irish Americans in Boston, and God knows there were enough Irish Americans um, at that stage, he um, was elected to the Massachusetts House of Representatives and the Massachusetts Senate. He served five consecutive terms in the House of Representatives and three two-year terms um, in, in the um, Massachusetts Senate. But he left politics um, because he wasn't interested. He wasn't interested in speeches. He wasn't interested in going around shaking hands and begging for votes and all of that sort of thing. And he became very successful as a businessman. And he uh, lived until 1929. He kept in touch with his father's people in Wexford. And for over 50 years, an enormous volume of correspondence built up between Patrick Joseph Kennedy and, uh, it, it, by the end, it was Ryan, the Ryan family, because the actual Kennedy name in Dungestown had died out, and it was a Mrs. Ryan was there. And this is, this is a sad story. In 1929, Mrs. Ryan and her daughter heard um, that PJ had died. So what did they do on a Sunday afternoon? They took out, out of the boxes where they were kept, all the letters and said, we don't need them anymore now. And they burned them. The whole lot. Can you imagine what that collection would be worth, not only financially, but just from the point of view of um, history? It would just be wonderful. And it actually might tell us about the Hickeys. However, that's neither here nor there. Um, PJ, um, PJ actually outlived his wife, Mary Augusta Hickey. Um, his wife died relatively young, only 65, um, and she um, was very overweight in her later years. In her younger years, she was a strikingly beautiful woman and was uh, much sought after, as the expression goes, uh, in Boston. But uh, PJ uh, succeeded in marrying her, and um, their eldest son was Joseph Kennedy, father of the president. So we'll talk about him briefly. Joseph Kennedy was not um, the sort of man, really, that you could admire. Unfortunately, he had many, many poor qualities. 
He was totally ambitious. He was over-ambitious. I have no problem with people being ambitious and people doing well for themselves. He was obsessed with doing well. He had little interest in his Irish heritage, very little. Um, it was, he felt it would keep him back from being accepted in the higher echelons of Boston society. And Boston society was all about class and all about who's who. And um, certain families like the Lowells and the Cabots dominated um, the Cabot name you'll have heard of, Henry Cabot Lodge, famous um, Republican politician in, in, um, in Boston. And Joe Kennedy wanted to be up there where they were. So he had no interest in his Irish roots as such. Um, strange, and unlike his son, JFK, John F. Kennedy, who was fascinated by his Irish roots. And we'll come to that in a minute. So their eldest son was Joe. He, at 25, became the youngest president of a bank um, in America, it was the um, Columbia Trust Bank, and he bought it out um, using some of his own money and some of the Hickey money, um, and it was a huge success. And just before the crash in Wall Street in 1929, clever fellow that he was, he sold all his shares and he had many. And when the crash came, he bought all around him because he was the only one left with money. So that's the source of his wealth. He was incredibly wealthy. Uh, but unfortunately, he, he was obsessed with his wealth, and he could never tolerate anything second best, and he was a bit over-ostentatious about it. Uh, morally, he was also a dodgy character, and unfortunately, his marriage, um, while on the face of it, it was all happy, and um, they were the wonderful family with their nine children, and so on and so forth, and we'll see one family portrait in a minute. Um, was miserable. Um, the family life was pretty miserable. Rose actually left him when she was pregnant with her fourth child and went back to her mother, uh, Mary Josephine Hannon, that we mentioned earlier. But Mary Josephine, um, who was having her own problems with her husband, Honey Fitz, that we'll talk about in a second, said, look, for better or for worse, you're married, go back to him. Uh, so back she went, and they effectively led separate lives. Um, Rose Kennedy um, actually travelled extensively throughout her life. She often went off for months uh, and she travelled all over the world, and they, they lived really separate lives. Though on the face of it, they were this big happy family, and they were this pin-up family, and, and so on and so forth. Nothing could be further from the truth. And Joe was a most unreliable and dodgy character in his personal life. And then, irony of ironies, he was a staunch member of the Catholic Church. He was in with every bishop and cardinal, and he always said it was one of the great ambitions of his life to be married by a cardinal, and he was. Um, and um, he had an audience with the Pope, um, uh, Pope Pius XII. Um, I can't think of his name before he was Pope. Um, somebody in the audience will know. Visited, visited Joe in his house in America. And the couch where he sat, they kept that and they moved it. Every time they moved house, they brought the couch with them because the Pope had sat on that couch. Um, but that was the great contradiction in Job. Um, not a very likeable fellow, uh, unfortunately. Uh, the more you read about him, the more um, sort of um, unhappy you'd be. Um, so, the next person in the family tree, as we're talking about, is John F. Honey Fitz Fitzgerald, um, uh, who married uh, Mary Josephine um, Hannon. He was a great politician in his own right. He was the opposite to Joe, and in fact they were deadly rivals in the politics of Boston, and they didn't like each other, and it was a horror story when um, uh, Honey Fitz's daughter and Joe uh, and, um, fell for, for Joe, 
um, and got, decided to get married because the two families didn't like each other because they were great rivals. Honeyfitz was the exact opposite to, to, to Joe. He was this man about town, um, shaking hands with everybody, dancing with every lady, doing everything he could to get a vote. He was flamboyant, outgoing. He was the very essence of your old style slap in the back politician and he caused a lot of confusion in the family tree because he told everyone that he ever met in Boston that he was related to them. And, and if their name was Fitzgerald, he guaranteed them that his people had come from wherever their people had come from. So a lot of people all over Ireland by the surname of Fitzgerald were foolishly convinced that they were actually related to, to Honey Fitz. He was elected to the Boston City Council in 1891 when he was still very young. He was less than 30. He was only 28. Um, between 1893 and 1895, he was in the Massachusetts um, State Senate, and from 1895 to 1981, he was in the U.S. House of Representatives. He was now in the big league, and he made national headlines when he convinced the president of the day to postpone signing an immigration bill and to allow free immigration into America for a further 25 years. He was hotly tipped for the vice presidential um, ticket in the 1912 election. And at the last minute, he withdrew from the race. Um, a great mystery. It's generally believed that there was the latest scandal of the many scandals surrounding him was about to be exposed, and he was given the option, listen, drop out or else. So he dropped out. Um, but that didn't, that didn't put a finish to Honey Fitz. He kept standing for election here, there, and everywhere. Whatever it was he stood for election, he kept losing. And eventually, people actually started to like him. Even though he was a thundering ruffin, um, he had been suspected of having a few affairs, and so on and so forth. He got things done when he was mayor of Boston. Uh, the Cape Cod Canal was built. He, he, built, he made sure the city got its first a zoo, antiquarium, and God knows what else. And Boston had the first underground rail service because that was his pet project, and he pushed it through. So for all his failings, and God knows he had a lot of failings, and he was a, a, a dodgy character, he actually got things done. And a strange thing happened as, as he got older. Even his sworn enemies actually got to like him, and he became they looked at him as being a sort of a likeable old rogue. And for his 85th birthday, his sworn enemy, Mayor Curley, decided that Boston should have a whole day's holiday to celebrate Honey Fitz's 85th birthday. So he went from hero to villain and back to hero. When he was 83 years of age, he was the most active canvasser for his grandson, uh, John F. Kennedy, when he stood for, the, um, for election to the um, House of Representatives, to Congress. And I don't have the photo, but there's a famous photo of Honey Fitz and his grandson, Bobby Kennedy, uh, the president's brother, dancing on top of the table. Um, Honey Fitz was 83 at the time. So he died, um, he died a few years later. His funeral was the largest um, scene in Boston. And the song that was associated with him, Sweet Adeline, the people who lined the streets um, all over Boston sang his song for him as his funeral passed by. So, very famous guy, and uh, John F. Kennedy called his, his boat the Honey Fitz in honour of his famous grandfather. So, he's worth mentioning. 
it should also be said that he visited, he was very fond of his Irish roots, unlike Joe Kennedy, who didn't give a damn about Irish roots and actually didn't want to be reminded of them. Um, Honey Fitz came back to Bruff in 1908 and in 1938. And I have a photograph um, um, of him in 1908 with his wife, Mary Josephine Hammond, which we'll see in a minute. Um, so Rose Fitzgerald, the president's mother, is worth mentioning. Um, she married, she, she um, was the, the daughter of Honey Fitz. And because Honey Fitz's wife had no interest in politics, that's Mary Josephine Hannon, Rose, from a very early stage, was her father's sort of companion. And from the time she was in her early teens, she accompanied him to all political functions and so on. She was a celebrity in her own right when she was only a teenager, Rose Fitzgerald. Um, and she famously lived to the age of 104. Uh, she was the president's mother. Um, but boy, had she a miserable life and a life absolutely um, dominated by tragedy, one after the other. Um, starting with her husband, Honey Fitz, who was a thundering rogue and who really didn't have much time for her, and she certainly had much time for him. Uh, but they stayed together. Um, and then all her family, which we'll mention later, JFK and uh, Bobby and all, and all the others who had either died or were shot or whatever. She had a terribly unhappy life, and um, that didn't stop her um, living for a long time. She died in 1995 at the age of 104. So she started off life at the top of the tree, uh, a real socialite, very famous, and so on. But she ended it a sad, lonely um, woman um, whose life was dominated by tragedy. Um, she was an absolutely obsessive doctrinaire Roman Catholic and in, when I'm talking about Kathleen, her daughter, in a minute, um, you'll see that that caused a grief uh, as well. So I think I have covered everyone that needs to be covered before I go to a few. I'm branching out. This isn't all about genealogy and family history. There are a few things I want to mention tonight. We've all seen the film and the video uh, and the coverage of JFK when he came to Dungunstown in 1963. And the impression you'd get is that this was his first time in Ireland, and certainly his first time in Dungunstown. Well, it wasn't. Not by a long way. Um, first of all, he came to Ireland in 1945 when he was employed as a journalist. He started off life as a journalist, and that's where he would have stayed if his older brother Joe hadn't got killed. And um, so he was then pushed into politics to replace Joe. So in 1945, as a journalist, he came to Ireland as part of a European tour, and he interviewed Eamon de Valera, and so on. He stayed at the, 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 Irish, um, uh, the American Embassy in Dublin, and he thoroughly enjoyed himself because he's, even though he's only two days in Ireland, what he wrote about Ireland was greatly exceeded what he wrote about places like Germany and England, where he actually spent a lot of time. So Ireland was, was really important to him. He had an obsessive interest in Ireland and his roots. So he came back in 1947. Um, he had just um, served his first term in Congress, and he decided to pay a visit to Ireland in 1947. And he had three reasons for coming to Ireland in 1947. He wanted to meet Eamon de Valera again, um, who was one of his great... He looked up to de Valera um, for whatever reason. Um, he admired him greatly, and he interviewed him, and so on. He wanted to visit his sister, Kathleen, who was living in Lismore Castle at the time, and uh, I'll come to that in a minute. And he wanted to go to the old um, homestead in Dungunstown. So, 
he duly met Eamon de Valera and was treated um, like royalty um, and so on because of who he was. And he travelled on to Lismore. So I think I'll, that'll switch me to Kathleen. What was his sister Kathleen doing living in Lismore? Well, she actually had an entitlement to live there because she was the young widow of none other than the eldest son of the Duke of Devonshire. And the story of Kathleen and um, Billy, the uh, Marquess of Hartington, which was the title that the, the eldest son of the Duke of Devonshire had, is a fascinating story which Joe Kennedy and his wife wanted to airbrush out of history. And they, they disowned her, and they didn't want to know about her, because, as you'll guess, um, Billy, uh, being a, m a member of the House of Devonshire, was a Protestant, and Joe and his wife were strict Roman Catholics. And this marriage uh, caused the greatest consternation in England in 1944. Um, so how, how did they meet? Um, well, when Joe was appointed ambassador to England in the 1930s, most of his children were very young, so he brought them to England with him. And one of those um, girls was Kathleen, who was a very attractive and incredibly outgoing girl. She was the most extraordinary, she had the most extraordinary personality. And within months of her arrival, every eligible bachelor in England was on Kathleen's trail. She really was a most extraordinary girl, and everybody was besotted by her. So, at a garden party in Buckingham Palace, no less, in 1938, she met the eldest son of the Duke of Devonshire. This wasn't a marriage made in heaven. The Duke of Devonshire uh, and his people before him, they were the Cavendish family, and they were the essence of old establishment and Church of England. And the Duke of Devonshire himself had written a widely publicised pamphlet condemning Roman Catholicism and the evils of Roman Catholicism and saying that every self-respecting Protestant family in England should have nothing to do with Roman Catholics. And suddenly... His eldest son, Billy, who was quite a shy and very polite and, by all accounts, terribly nice young man, met Kathleen and, despite the best efforts of both families, the two fell madly in love. Joe Kennedy and Rose were horrified. They did everything. Um, they sent Kathleen back to America and she was away from Billy for four years. Uh, when, the, when the war broke out, she insisted on going back to England <coughs> in the Red Cross so that she could work in the Red Cross but that was really only a, a pretense to get back with Billy again. Billy hadn't forgotten her, um, but their religion was a problem. The press coverage was huge. Actually, Marion, we might go forward to... There they are. Thank you. That is Billy, even though he was the eldest son of the Duke of Devonshire and stood to inherit the largest estate in England. And their family ranked probably second to the royal family in terms of importance. And Kathleen... And as you see, while she's an attractive and pretty girl, she wasn't exactly sort of a striking beauty, but her personality was unbelievable. Billy's father, the Duke of Devonshire, was a real stiff upper lip old sort, and nobody ever spoke boldly to him or made fun of him. Kathleen used to joke with him and call him the Jukey Wookie. <laughs> and he took it. I mean, if, if anybody else, she would probably have been um, put in jail or probably kicked out of the country. She had a way about her that everybody was um, obsessed with. 
So there they are. If you just you know, go forward again, Marion, that is her in the middle, the, and that's a famous photograph. On, the, um, on her right, on our left as we look at it, is her older brother, Joe, and on the other side is JFK, and they are walking to the House of Parliament in England to hear the announcement um, of Britain declaring war on Germany. So, if we... Now, Marcus weds with the doors locked, Miss Kennedy, a marchioness, Duke and heir's secret wedding. So, we'll skip on to that. Whatever happened, um, there was intervention at the highest level in both the Church of England and in the Roman Catholic Church. Cardinals and all sorts of people were um, consulted to see what, if any, could be done and could a special dispensation from Rome be obtained to allow this wedding to take place. Um, because this was a sensation in its day, an absolute sensation. And nothing could be done, and eventually a compromise was reached. Kathleen, even though it broke her heart, agreed to give up her religion, and they married in a registry office in Chelsea in a short 10-minute ceremony. So there he was, the eldest son of the Duke of Devonshire, the heir to the largest estate in England, whose wedding would probably have been the wedding of the year in any normal, the wedding of the decade, getting married in a short 10-minute ceremony in a registry office in Chelsea. If we, just as we're on, Kathleen, we will move on. Uh, there she is at Goodwood Races. We have more of her, I think. Just another typical photo. This is the wedding photograph outside the registry office. Um, obviously Kathleen and Billy are there in the middle. Um, the handsome man just overlooking Kathleen's shoulder is her older brother Joe. He was the only member of the Kennedy family who went to the wedding. The rest of them, um, Joe and Rose, said no way would they have anything to do with the wedding. But her elder brother Joe, that she was very close to, uh, went to the wedding. Little did she realise when that photograph was taken that within a few short months both Joe and her husband would be dead. Um, the, the lady, and that's the Duke of Devonshire there, and his wife, who was a relatively young woman, on the other side. It has to be said that the Duchess um, of Devonshire, uh, who was Kathleen's mother-in-law, um, was extremely good to Kathleen, and was extremely honourable about the whole sorry saga, and um, they became great friends in the few brief years um, that, they, that, that Kathleen was, had left uh, alive. We'll come to her death in a minute. And have we any more of that? I don't. I think that's, that's um, Joe Kennedy made sure he was a master of um, publicity, and we call it spin doctoring nowadays. The spin doctors of today are only trotting after Joe Kennedy. He got this photograph of Kathleen in London with her Red Cross uniform, and it was published in every newspaper you could think of, so that Joe could proudly say that his daughter was in London during the war, working with the Red Cross. It was just a master of propaganda. And that is her headstone. Um, we'll come to that. I'll, we'll, we'll, finish, we'll finish with poor old Kathleen. So. Um, after the wedding, they had four weeks together, and Billy had to go back to the Belgian front fighting in the war. And at first, all was going well because the Germans kept retreating, and Billy and his men were doing great, sweeping through town after town, and they appeared to be had, had the Germans on the run. 
sadly, um, at a, uh, in a tongue, the name which I can't remember now, I'm sorry, um, the Germans in, uh, in, uh, dug in and in an exchange of shots, Billy was shot dead. Um, now, Billy was buried with all his fellow soldiers in Belgium. So his family, the Duke of Devonshire, for all his wealth and all his importance, didn't even have a proper funeral to, uh, for his beloved eldest son, Billy. And um, Kathleen, I'll finish briefly on Kathleen, that's her headstone. Kathleen was broken-hearted um, for a year or two, and then she met a, a most dodgy character called Peter Fitzwilliam, who was also a very wealthy man, with estates in Scotland, England and Ireland. And they, there was great consternation, because he was also non-Catholic, and there was efforts made to have a meeting to patch things up with her father in Paris. And Peter hired a private plane to, to, for himself and Kathleen to be transported to Paris. And against the pilot's advice, because there was a storm forecast, the plane took off and was lost. Um, and <coughs> Kathleen, the bodies were found, and Joe... Uh, Kennedy, for all his wealth and all his importance and everything, um, he, he was distraught. He could do nothing about it, and it was left to the Duke and Duchess of Devonshire, uh, of, of Devonshire, to arrange for the for Kathleen's body to be brought back to England, and they um, arranged to have her buried in Chatsworth, which is their 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 mansion, and they even arranged for a Roman Catholic mass to be said as the funeral mass, which was unheard of. This was the Duke of Devonshire who had written about the importance of having nothing to do with Roman Catholics, but they were very gracious, and it has to be said they were far more gracious about the whole thing than the Kennedys ever were. Uh, that's Chatsworth, which, which if things had worked out differently, Kathleen would have occupied, um, and so on. So Kathleen was buried. Her father was the only member of her family who went to the funeral, and there was controversy at the time because he left immediately after the burial, didn't even speak to the priest who was officiating and didn't speak to the huge number of lords and ladies and other important people there. In fairness, we have to be fair to everybody, Joe later wrote to the Duchess of Devonshire to apologise and to say that he was actually so distraught and he thanked her profusely for dealing with everything because he said he wasn't up to dealing with it and he couldn't. And, in fact, relationships um, improved. The Duchess of uh, Devonshire certainly covered herself in glory. Um, she, had, she had been deprived of the opportunity of ever burying her son, her eldest son, um, because he was buried with his men in Belgium. And she still saw fit to honour Kathleen. And she, it was she who engraved the headstone. And there's a special inscription on joy she gave and joy she has earned is the inscription. Um, JFK visited the grave in 1963. After he was in Ireland, he went to England on business and suddenly he disappeared in a totally unscheduled um, break in his meeting with politicians and so on and a helicopter landed in Chatsworth and JFK got out and went to Kathleen's grave, which is a very emotional um, event for him. And of course, all the workers in Chatsworth were intrigued because they'd all forgotten that the Duke of Devonshire, who was then Andrew, that was Billy's younger brother, and JFK were actually brothers-in-law. Everybody had forgotten that because Kathleen had been written out of history and 
so on. So that's the story of Kathleen, um, the forgotten member of the Kennedy family. Now, back to Dungunstown. Sorry, we're still at the 1947 visit. One morning, um, JFK borrowed a station wagon from the Lismore Castle and decided that he would head off and find the uh, homestead in Dungunstown, which was about 50 miles away. I'm not sure. But anyway, he headed off, and as his companion for the day, uh, because the great and the good were all staying in Lismore Castle, was Pamela Churchill, daughter-in-law of Winston Churchill. She probably thought it would be a great idea to head off with this handsome young um, um, congressman from America. And it took ages to find the place because they asked for Kennedys and they were sent to a family who actually weren't in the homestead. And they arrived eventually, met Mrs. Ryan, and JFK had a letter in his pocket from Loretta, um, his granddad that I mentioned earlier, the family historian, to introduce him. Um, I mean, she must have had visions of Mrs. Ryan at the door saying, I won't let you in unless I know who you are. Um, in fact, Mrs. Ryan, was, while she was shocked, she was thrilled and delighted because she could still remember the correspondence with his grandfather, P.J. Kennedy, and so on. So he spent the entire afternoon there. Um, by the time the meeting was finished, every child in the townland and parish had gathered because they were all astonished at what was happening. This big station wagon and this important man from America, and so on. And um, Pamela Churchill was getting more angry and more fed up. And she let her annoyance be known to JFK and said that she'd much prefer if she hadn't come with him and so on. And according to JFK's diaries, they didn't speak a single word on the journey back. And he at one stage considered throwing her out. <laughs> and he, walk on. he arrived back to Lismore thinking that Kathleen would be highly excited at what had happened and the finding of the, of the home place and Kathleen, who had as much interest in these things as her father, said, I have no interest and you're late for your dinner. So, however, um, JFK's meeting that day with Pamela Churchill wasn't in vain. She noticed um, that he looked very poorly. And it's not generally known, but JFK had terribly poor health. He was in and out of hospital all his life. But again, that, would all, that was all covered up as part of the spin doctrine because it wouldn't look good for a political career if you had to admit that your health was poor. And he was constantly in pain, um, constantly in difficulty, and constantly getting sick. Not just his back, which of course was a major problem since the accident uh, during the Second World War. But he was constantly sick. And Pamela said to him, even though they, they weren't really speaking, she said, listen, she said, you look bad. I want you to see my private doctor in London. And he did. Um, Sir something, or he was Davies, I can't think of his first name, he was Sir something Davies. And it was that man who, for the first time, and JFK was now about 36, 37, um, who diagnosed that he had Addison's disease. And without that diagnosis, JFK would probably not have lived for more than another couple of years. And he had to take cortisone practically every day for the remainder of his life um, to, um, to keep any sort of health up. So it, his poor health was covered up all his life. Um, and um, it was Addison's disease was his problem. And he can thank Pamela Churchill, even though he didn't get on with her, he can thank her for that. <clears throat> so, um, we dealt with Kathleen. Thank you. How are we on time? I'm terribly sorry, this is taking a bit longer. Okay, okay. Anyway, um, I suppose we can go on to 
just to mention other members of the family briefly before I get on to the assassination of JFK uh, on the 22nd of November 1963. Um, his older brother Joe um, was a distinguished pilot during the war and after he was eligible for release and he could have gone back to America, um, a war hero with a perfect record and he could have taken up his, his political career which was earmarked for him, he volunteered to fly in a, a particularly dangerous mission um, to um, knock out a whole load of German planes which were dropping bombs called doodlebugs. And the plan was to fill an aeroplane with bombs and that he would eject once the plane um, was in the air and would, would be remotely guided to the German airbase. Unfortunately, the he hadn't ejected when the bombs went off and there was never a trace of the plane, the bombs or, or Joe. It was just it was, uh, it was wiped out into oblivion. Um, so that was the end of, of, of Joe. Um, Kathleen, as you know, died in an aeroplane crash in 1948, as I told you. And um, more family tragedy. Um, the eldest girl, Rosemary, who was brain damaged at birth, um, Joe found it impossible to accept that and he risked she had reasonable intelligence, she could read and she worked as a kindergarten teacher so it wasn't as if she was an absolute disaster, he risked brain surgery in the hope of getting her right and it went horribly wrong and she was institutionalised for the rest of her life and she actually only died in 2005 but again she was airbrushed out of history because Joe felt it wouldn't look good for the political career of his sons and so on and neither Joe nor his wife Rose um, went to visit her very often. At one stage there was a three year gap when no, neither of them went to see her. So sadly, plenty of black marks against Joe and Rose. Anyway, um, uh, JFK won the Senate election in 1952. Um, against all the odds he defeated Henry Cabot Lodge and that put him into national um, headlines and he proved himself to be a very great debater and television was getting big. Before that, all um, political, um, we'll say, canvassing was done um, personally, door-to-door, -door, rallies, big rallies and radio broadcasts. Television was new and, in and at the end of 1950s, JFK was absolutely the tailor-made candidate to cash in on this. He was a great debater, very intelligent and very widely read. He had an obsessive interest in history and he was one of the best informed people. He had won awards for his writings, uh, as you probably know, uh, Profiles in Courage, uh, Why England Slept and a few other um, books. He was an obsessive historian and a great writer, um, very talented, and he took to the television medium like nobody else. It was new and he was dashing, handsome and so on. And against all the odds, he beat Richard Nixon in the presidential election to become the youngest person to be elected as president of the United States in 1960. On that point, and as a complete aside, um, the great quiz question, who was the youngest president of the United States? And of course, the question should never be asked because there are two answers. JFK was the youngest person to be elected president at the age of 43, but Teddy Roosevelt was president at the age of 42 because he was the vice president um, when McKinley was shot and under the American system the vice president steps in so um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was president when um, he was only 42 
but JFK was the youngest person to be elected as president. And I wish somebody would clarify that once, because I've heard that asked at quiz at uh, table quizzes and the riots that uh, start um, when people give two different answers. Be that as it may, <clears throat> JFK um, was president, and I'll skip. I have to really skip on because of time constraints to 1963. Um, he was already thinking, as you know, the, the American system, which that I, I find absolutely daft. The president only lasts for four years, and it takes 12 months to elect him. Um, I mean, we're bad in this country, but we can still elect uh, a government and a president in 21 days. They take 12 months at it. So in November 1963, he was already thinking of the re-election. His vice president was Lyndon Johnson. Now, if ever you met a dodgy character, it's Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson was from Texas, which had only barely voted um, Democratic in the 1960 election. Only by a tiny number of votes did they get the majority, and in Dallas itself, they lost to the Republicans. Not surprising, considering that Texas was in the heart of the old Confederate um, America. So there was trouble in the Democratic Party in Texas, and a visit was arranged to, um, to Dallas um, for November. Plans for the visit were finalised in September, and the route of the presidential cavalcade was announced uh, in September, and the visit was planned for the 22nd of, no of November, as we all know. So, um, he arrives in as planned, and he's, he's being driven along Dealey Plaza. His vice president, Lyndon Johnson, is not in the car with him. He is safely two cars further back, and he's accompanied by John Conley, the governor of Texas, and a number of shots are fired, and Kennedy is shot. That's a great place to leave it. It's one of those moments where a certain Irish generation recall where they were the day they heard JFK had been assassinated. In a fortnight's time, we'll hear more on this lecture about his West Cork connections. Mm -hmm.